Viewpoint, weekdays, 8 to 10 p.m. on SAFM. The Viewpoint. Weekdays, 8 to 10 p.m. Songhez on on SAFM. Yeah, it's five minutes after nine. First hour has come, first hour has gone. Thank you so much to Greg Khos for reading us the news. And just before we went to the news, we were trying to wrap up our conversation with Ndate Raks Siakwa, who is talking to us about this culture that seems to have gripped the movement, particularly the youth, in terms of burning schools and doing all forms of protest, but of them, burning libraries and books. Ndate, as we just have a conversation about specifically what has happened now, I know you were at least happy to hear the fact that the the Secretary General has distanced himself from this. But there's now, it's, it's not by any stretch of any imagination something that is of the past. One, it has happened before. One, it is happening. And there's a very good possibility it may happen in Cape Town tomorrow as this book is launched. What are your misgivings, if any, about the state of affairs now moving forward? Has it been sufficiently rebuked by the leadership? And do you possibly think that the youth would heed that call from the leadership to the extent that it has been rebuked, not to disrupt the proceedings tomorrow in Cape Town, as we've just heard from the news, it'll be happening in Cape Town tomorrow. The African National Congress, I know, um, the, the membership are loyal, and they believe in the, once a decision has been made, um, all of us uh, fall behind that decision. It will be a huge disappointment. If uh, when the book uh, continues to be launched elsewhere tomorrow, like in Cape Town, um, you know, other comrades find it uh, uh, suitable to disrupt, um, uh, it will be very unfortunate. Uh, I pray that doesn't happen. Okay, finally, as we talk about your work now with regard to being a member of the South African Literary Awards, just give us a background as to what those are and how South Africa ranks, generally speaking, against the rest of the world in literature development, output, and related work. Well, um, the South African Literary Awards has been going on since uh, 2005. Um, We've awarded uh, over 200 uh, writers uh, already across um, all the official languages in South Africa, including uh, our National Poet Laureates, starting with the professors Mavizi uh, Kunene, Brawili, Hositi, and now Professor Wali Sorote. The call for submissions has been extended to the, the end of this month with a special focus on wanting to attract more of the African languages because we are going very slow. We don't receive as many as we find in, in, in other languages, especially in English and Africans. Um, but our literature, I think, uh, by and large, uh, not only through the South African Literary Awards, but the other awards assistance we find in the country, we, we're ranking quite high uh, in the world. We are addressing matters, um, you know, going from traditional to very radical and, um, and new, new subjects you know, like uh, matters on a new um, social media, um, environmental awareness, um, diseases that uh, had no cure um, and we had no knowledge of before that have been treated in, in our literature. And we've gone beyond uh, what our detractors used to say that 
now that apartheid is gone, what are you going to write about? Uh, we prove, prove them, them wrong that uh, a writer is a writer, uh, and, and a ref, uh, he or she reflects the situation that uh, is surrounding him or her. Yeah. Literature. How mm-hmm. encompassing is it? In, in an African context, there's a lot of tradition of not so much written but spoken through stories and experiences and very visual, even through music, does the work of the Literary Awards consider that as a form of literature and preservation of history, culture, and telling of stories, more particularly in an indigenous context? Well, um, uh, will be the restriction uh, for now is only for published work. Um, so we don't, um, you know, take, for instance, uh, um, oral uh, stuff. It is, uh, we're taking books that uh, we can pass around uh, different uh, judges to, to read and then comment on and then ultimately come out with uh, a decision who is um, the best writer. But, you know, some years ago, we need to also uh, uh, look critically at this assertion that Africa historically has uh, been an oral-based uh, uh, tradition. Sure. Uh, nothing could be further from the truth if you go into research. Uh, Talk about Timbuktu, I want to hear that. In fact, yes. the world uh, learned from Africa, uh, especially when you go to places like, uh, like Egypt and Mali. The first universities Timbuktu. in the world are African. The Greeks and, and others came to learn from Africa and then went back home to establish the same and perhaps improve on. And the, the, the evidence is there. It's not uh, something that we just uh, dream about. So this uh, story of orality may have some truth, but uh, it's not as true as the, the colonialists want to, us to believe. That uh, you know, they came, they taught us how to read and write. Otherwise, we knew nothing about this. They learned sure. from us. And, Thank you so much for they, correcting you know, that. Uh, it's about time that we we get off our seats and uh, go down and, and find out and, uh, and enlighten the future generations that Absolutely. Uh, we have been there before. Dr. Rux, thank you so much for your contributions and thank you particularly from that last point. I think that is in many respects uh, a true model of who we are as Africans. We are thoroughly schooled people, but the context of colonization has changed everything. I mean, when you talk about the oldest universities, one of them was founded by, and I forget the name, by a woman in Morocco, the other, I mean, it's, it's a contest between two universities in Morocco and Egypt, but the oldest manuscripts are found in Timbuktu. Unfortunately, Boko Haram got hold of some of them and burned them. But nonetheless, we thank you for your time. Anything exciting happening? Finally? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, uh, if people can please uh, go to www.sala.org.za to access uh, the criteria um, about the, the South African Literary Awards and the course of submissions, and please, please submit your work. You don't have to be a publisher. Um, please submit your work to, to that, especially the ones in in our languages, the African languages. Excellent. It's www.sala.org.za. And we were yes. in conversation with Ndate Raksiakwa, who is a member of the South African Literary Awards, the founding director of Wright Associates, and a member of the Hugh Masegela Lecture. We'll be back very shortly. The Viewpoint, 8 to 10 p.m. Turning conventional wisdom on its head. 
Songhez on SAFM. Songhez on SAFM. And in studio right now, I am joined by Mark Haywood, the executive director at Section 27. Of course, you would have heard from the news just last week, Cancer Alliance and Treatment Action Campaign convened a summit to deliberate on cancer crisis that is looming in South Africa. Civil society says they are concerned by the dramatic increase in the number of people with and they believe that they are, or rather the country is faced with a problem that is similar to that which we faced many years ago, which we're still grappling with in many respects, and that was HIV and AIDS. We zoom in now on the issues, and more to tell us about that is a man who has certainly got his finger on the pulse in terms of public health care in South Africa. Mr. Mark Haywood, welcome. This is The Viewpoint. Good evening, Songhezo, and thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much. You know, I must say, as a law student all those many years ago, <laughs> your work would have come across at the time not so much enjoyable, but certainly now that I think of it, you are a giant in South Africa's democracy. You have done incredibly well, especially for the marginalized people, and it's only appropriate for me now, having had so much of an interface with you, albeit not personally, but you've done really well, and I also appreciate your contributions at the Health Market Inquiry. I've done some work there as well on that. It's just at a personal level for me to you. Thank you so much for the work that you do in South Africa. could do a lot more with more Mark Haywoods. You're very kind, and I can only say thank you very much, Sangeza. Thank you. Indeed. Let's talk about cancer, the burden that it is to the country. Do we as a nation have any sense this looming disaster that is cancer is? And if not, why not? Well, I don't think that we do. Um, You know, as you mentioned in your introduction, I work on many of the front lines of health issues in South Africa and over the last two, three years maybe, a bit like with HIV 20 years ago, every time you speak to doctors, every time you speak to patients, more and more people tell you about the growing numbers of people with cancer, about having a relative with cancer, about the experiences of treatment or lack of treatment in facilities for cancer. And it's clear that cancer, which is one of what we call a group of non-communicable diseases, is growing uh, in South Africa as it is growing in the world and is presenting us with, unfortunately, with a new public health uh, or with a new health crisis, a, a cause of growing illness, a cause of growing death. And it is something that we all need to sit up and take much, much more seriously than we have done up to now. Mm. But As you also said in your introduction, and this is one of the reasons that I've felt the need to kind of begin to speak out on this issue, that just like with HIV, it is also very much a marker of the inequalities that exist in in, in healthcare. You know, 20 years ago when we started campaigning on HIV, if you had HIV and you were reasonably wealthy, then you could probably afford the medicines and you could probably live. Uh, But if you were poor and you were dependent on the public sector, you almost certainly would die of AIDS. And today, you know, cancer, and you would have heard it on the news, just uh, the 9 o'clock news, you know, there Mm. are breakthroughs Mm. all of the time. Cancer is better understood. It is better treated. Cancer is curable. That's one of the messages that that we frequently hear. But that is the case largely if you are in a good healthcare system. If you're in a bad healthcare system or if you're poor and if you can't afford the medicines, then you're going to be in trouble. And that's one of the reasons why I feel that it's necessary now in this country to join with organizations like the Cancer Alliance, like Cancer, you know, other advocacy organizations and find ways to start to build 
a voice that says we must ensure proper care and treatment for people with cancer and we must do more by the way to prevent cancer as well or cancers without sounding alarmist but let me just read because you mentioned numbers early on just to get a sense of the pandemic that is unfolding right before our eyes without action the worldwide cancer burden is expected to reach 21 million new diagnoses and 13 million deaths by 2030 that's in 11 years from now that's right. It's, With the I mean, most ca- rapid increases occurring, I beg your pardon, Sorry. in the low and middle income countries, cancer deaths worldwide for 2017 are estimated, this is 2017, at 25,000 per day. It's obviously mm-hmm. more now. This is two years on, of which over two-thirds occur in economically developing countries. South Africa is one of those developing countries. Your thoughts on this? Well, you've given the statistics. Um, it is, again, it's, you know, cancers, there are many different types of cancers, but what we know is that cancers are to do with environmental, external factors, smoking, alcohol, the air people breathe if, if, if it's badly polluted air. So it's not surprising that you know the burden is once again falling on on developing uh, uh, countries, uh, and it's falling on people in developing countries who live in countries with failing healthcare systems, which is common again to many you know to many lower income countries so it just adds to 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 the crisis i mean i you know i was talking to a professor at uh, university of kwazulu natal a few few weeks ago who's saying you know south africa's burden of disease is three times the equivalent of many similar economically situated countries three times you know we have one of the worst burdens of disease of illness of any country in the world and and cancer is is now something that is causing that to to grow you know you read statistics that are about what's happening in the world we're seeing that in south africa we don't have great statistics in south africa the statistics are improving there's a national what's called a national cancer registry but again it's an area where we need improvements because if we get accurate statistics i think it may wake up the politicians I've got so much to say on this, and before we do that, we have to take a commercial ad break because we have to pay the bills. We were friends in exile. He was a hero, a fighter who never backed down. He was there for every fight until he gave up our location. What a coward. First of April at 9.30 on SABC2. April the 2nd was a bad day in the office for Fulham after losing 4-1 to Watford. Now the Cottagers will play for pride this Saturday in the Premier League match of the week against Everton. It's quite easy when you're playing a football match against a world-class team to play back to front really quick and not see the ball. The Dogs of War Everton will have to prove that their bite is bigger than their bark in search for maximum points to move up from the middle of the table. It's the fix of one out, but out in the level 2 Brilliant. Catch the Cottagers, Fulham, up against Everton this Saturday live on SABC3 at 3.30pm. Proudly brought to you by SABC Sports for the love of the game. The Viewpoint, 8 to 10pm. Flipping conventional wisdom on its head. Call Songhez or now. This is Songhez on my back there on The Viewpoint. We're taking your calls on 891 My guest this evening is Mr. Mark Haywood, Executive Director at Section 27. And we're talking about South Africa's plight, that is cancer. And Mark mentioned, and we're going to go to the quadruple burden of disease that he mentioned earlier on. But we speak about the types of cancers. And I'm just reading from 
I mean, you say we suffer from a variety of cancer, prostate cancer, men specifically, mm-hmm. is common mostly among across the color lines, Africans, coloreds, Asians, whites. You find at the height of cancer problems or cancer diseases, specifically the types of cancer, it's prostate cancer. Whereas with women, admittedly and expectedly, it's different. But for African women, the biggest killer there or the biggest problem is cervical cancer. Whereas with colored women, Asian women and white women, it's breast cancer. What are the trends that, rather these trends or these statistics, what do they tell us at a social level? Well, they they tell us about, you know, people's exposure to factors that to socio often to socioeconomic factors that can lead to a greater vulnerability to greater risk um, that's essentially it you know prostate cancer is, is common as you said to men across races but there's differences when it comes to breast cancer and cervical cancer for cervical cancer we have vaccinations uh, that reduce the risk of cervical cancer but Young girls in poor schools are less likely to get those vaccinations and therefore are more likely to be, be, be exposed to or develop cervical cancer. So there's a range of, of factors. Yes. And again, I, I'm sorry, I keep drawing the parallels with HIV, but you know sure. what, what we need to do in South Africa is to create cancer literacy. You know, we need, we need much better understanding of our health, of our bodies, of what the things that we put into our bodies or expose ourselves to c- can do to us in terms of, of in terms of disease and and you know with all of these cancers uh, we also need better awareness and, and earlier diagnosis so we uh, Songezo you know we held what we call the civil society summit uh, on cancer mm. uh, two weeks mm. ago ten days ago and we had yes. a, a number of uh, really fantastic oncologists, doctors, two of them who work at Chris Harney Baragwanath Hospital, one in hematology, the other uh, specialist in breast cancer coming and talking to a group of activists about the science and what, they, what they're seeing. And one of the things that they said is that, you know, there's very, very late diagnosis of cancers because there's such low awareness and because people struggle with access to healthcare services. So when people pitch up late uh, to be diagnosed with prostate cancer or cervical cancer or breast cancer, uh, if it's a late diagnosis, it makes often makes the treatment and the outcomes poorer. Uh, and then you combine late diagnosis with the socioeconomic circumstances mm. of people, mm. people who can't afford to come back to the few centers where you can, the tertiary hospital centers where you can get treatment like Chrisani Baragwanath or somewhere else. So they don't come and they don't pick up their medicines or they don't come for treatment. So another shocking figure that was told to us was that 20% of people drop out of treatment, out of cancer treatment. Uh, And I would imagine it's across the board for all forms of chronic diseases, not just cancer specifically. Absolutely, absolutely, which is why when you're talking about healthcare services, you know, people think about medicines and hospitals and doctors and nurses, but often whether a person is able to get to a clinic or a hospital uh, is as important as whether they're able to access the medicine when when, when they get there. That can also be a major determinant of treatment success or treatment failure. So, you know, health is a complex but critical, critical thing in, in, in people's lives. 
You mentioned that South Africa ranks quite highly in the quadruple burden of disease. Let me just go through it. It's HIV and AIDS, it's chronic diseases and lifestyle, it's underdevelopment, and it's injury and violence. Mm-hmm. And, of course, perhaps disproportionately or proportionately, they might be lower in, in other areas against other countries. But generally speaking, it is this quadruple burden of disease relative to other countries is as high as you mentioned. Where does TB feature in all of this? Because we've had many reports saying that TB is the greatest pandemic that is facing South Africa. Now, in terms of South Africa's priorities, where does TB rank vis-a-vis cancer? And what is it, if any, that is the relationship between the two? Well, um, you know, TB is still, as far as I know, the leading cause of death uh, in South Africa. Um, TB, great lip service is given to TB as a priority. TB is curable, uh, eminently, totally curable. Uh, and, And yet people, tens of thousands of people are dying of tuberculosis every year. Uh, TB is, is, is preventable. Uh, one of the reasons why we have such a serious tuberculosis epidemic in this country is because TB and HIV are very closely related. You know, if you're, and stigmatized. And, and stigmatized. If you live with HIV, particularly if you're not taking antiretroviral treatment, when your immune system gets broken down by HIV, you become more vulnerable to TB, and TB is very widely in the environment. Uh, so that, so, so you know who you just sounded like there in that last line? <laughs> who did that sound like? You sound like President Mbeki in the early 2000s. Why? That's exactly what he said. No, but there's always been a connection between TB and HIV. And where I where I, I'm very much don't sound like President Mbeki is that <laughs> President Mbeki correctly pointed out that you know many of the diseases and this this quadruple burden of disease that you talked about are related to poverty and are related to people's socioeconomic circumstances and there's absolutely no doubt that if we you know if we do more to get out of poverty if we improve our education system if we get p- people jobs if we improve access to clean water and decent food etc cetera, etc cetera, that would reduce the burden of disease you know that that understanding is about 150 years old. It was, you know, one of the biggest causes of declines in illness and death in countries like England at the beginning of the 20th century was improvements in in sanitation. So that's not a not a new insight. But you see where where, where President Mbeki was wrong when he was talking about HIV is that President Mbeki said, well, but we must, you know, we shouldn't give people access to the medicines that treat HIV. Which is just totally wrong because now we have four and a half million people in South Africa taking antiretroviral medicines. We've seen a growth in life expectancy of men and women uh, of 10 years over the last 10 years because of declining uh, death due to, to, to HIV. We've seen a massive drop, drop in the number of children being born with HIV or dying of HIV. So, you know, health, there are many components of health there is prevention there are the socio-economic circumstances and there are there, there is the question of access to quality healthcare services quality care and quality quality medicines and at the moment when we talk about cancer you know all of those things are in place and our concern with cancer is that the medicines are so immorally ridiculously insanely expensive that actually they that, that they are they are killing tens of thousands of people by denying people access to those medicines thanks mark you know
it's very tempting to sort of sidetrack and get deep <laughs> into this president and yeah. Talumbeke debate because, I mean, unfortunately, it it is something that caused a lot. Let me call it consternation in the country. And I'm not going to venture into that, but mm. on another day, you and I are going to have to have that conversation. Happily. And I don't commit myself one way or the other, but I just want to ask some vexing questions. Probably mm. not now. But let's just go back to the socioeconomic issues because that's what you grapple with a Section 27. Section 27, for those who don't know, is a right entrenched in the Constitution. Everybody has a right to healthcare, food, water, and social security. And that is what Mark Haywood has dedicated the best part of his life to. And he has, in many respects, done so much for even the legal jurisprudence, especially from cases that come from the Constitutional Court. And in that regard, he's trained many advocates who are now proponents, and great proponents of human rights. So well done to Mark. Let's talk about late diagnosis mm. and the dropout once people are enrolled in programs. Whilst I understand perhaps why there might be reasons for late diagnosis, it's lack of information and the education levels of those things and the poverty that one is surrounded by might play a role in that. But once you've gone past that level, now you are diagnosed and you have been given treatment, why would one not persist with the program? What support measures are available to people? That's the first question. And I want you to answer that before we talk about the access in terms of finances associated with treatment and medication and everything else that comes with that. Well, the, the, there can be a, a variety of factors. And, and just remember that I'm, a, I'm an activist and somebody who works primarily with law rather than a medical doctor. But I've, I've you know, obviously had many, many years of exposure to, to, to doctors and people involved in healthcare. But what they will tell you, why people drop out of treatment, is because people don't have the support that they need for treatment. You know, if you're going to be taking a medicine uh, every day, uh, sometimes that medicine has side effects. You need to understand why that meds, what that medicine does, <laughs> how it is fighting the cancer. Why, if you stop taking that medicine, the cancer or the HIV or the tuberculosis, why the treatment will fail. So, there's an element of counselling. There's an element of what we call treatment literacy. I mean, very, very important with HIV was people were not just told, take a blue pill or take a red pill. We trained people in the days of the treatment action campaign to understand the names of the medicine, to understand how it was that a particular medicine reduces the level of virus in a person's blood and by reducing the level of virus reduces the impact on the immune system and by reducing the impact on the immune system makes it a person less vulnerable to what we called opportunistic infections, which are just, as as the word suggests, medicines yeah. that take advantage of a weakened weakened immune system. Immune, if yes. you understand those things, then you're more likely to persist with taking a course of medicines. I mean, you think, Songhezo, about antibiotics. You know, you'll get given a course. I of never finish them, frankly. Well, that's what I was about to say. You know, and that's one of the. It's a big problem in the world because you and about you know probably a hundred million other people don't finish your antibiotics, and that is one of the causes of growing antibiotic resistance. Because I feel fine. Because and you that's feel, a problem. and that's fine. Because you feel fine, and you don't understand that whilst you may be feeling fine, the medicine is still needed for a period in order to. Uh, complete the treatment and to make the medicine do what the medicine needs to do. Um, so you, so mm. you need to understand that. And that's why, again, you know, I feel like in this country, in every country, if we had better health literacy, if, if, if radio stations like this, for example, 
had a good weekly health program that wasn't you know parochial and talking down to people and so on but actually helping people to understand the health issues that they will literally walk into every morning as they step out of the door of their I'm house yeah i'm going to challenge you before <laughs> i do that we're taking your calls on 0891 104207 i'm sitting with mr mark haywood of section 27 he's the executive director there he is an activist par excellence in human rights and he aligns himself with all good things particularly for the indigent marginalized and closed off communities mark let me come back to you on the health literacy Mm. you mentioned the successes of health literacy specifically done through tac as it pertained to then what was seriously a problem not that it is any less of a problem but certainly more manageable now hiv and aids why not rather from what i'm getting from you why has that not translocated lift and drop as a model for cancer and even tb and generally for 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 healthcare in the country particularly when we at least know i mean there's no a single soul who can argue against the fact that our public health care system is under serious pressure and a way to sort of alleviate to the extent possible is healthcare education if you can allow people to be sufficiently empowered to enjoy these rights of section 27 inter alia and mm. having not to access public hospitals that's optimal it's not about going to a hospital and then getting optimal service the point is not to get there yep. but should you get there then perhaps you should be getting and undoubtedly so perfect health care so from a perspective of healthcare education and the dissemination of information I mean, even in the language of that information and the time at which, for instance, if we're going to be having a, a radio program talking about healthcare, the time at which we're going to be having that discussion is as critical. How do we go around that? One. And two, if you agree and we can put ourselves to a challenge here, every time I have a show, once a month we can have health literacy. Well, I, I'll take you up on that. Please do that. You would be saving lives and you would be educating people and it can be done in a way that is interesting and is not just you know, didactic and talking down to people. I mean, health is about our lives. It's a fascinating thing. But if we understand it, we will also live better, better lives. So, so please do that. But, but why not? Well, that's, that's what I'd like to know. I would like to know that as well. And I I can only say to you that I think it's in no small part due to poor administration, due to corruption. I mean, the Department of Health puts out multi-million rand tenders i mean i'm talking like 400 million rand tenders for health education stuff now you think songezo yeah what what do you see for Nothing. that 400 million rand now if somebody gave me 400 million rand oh that'd be a different market i, I <laughs> you know I, you could do a lot you could get a lot across you could be heard uh not me as mark but the the the, the messages and, and and that has got to be done because if you spent, I mean, let's say you spent a billion rand on health education, you would probably save the health system about 50 billion rand over the next 20 years by preventing TBs, Correct. by preventing obesity, by preventing diabetes, by preventing a whole bunch of things. So you need wise people in the treasury, wise people in the government that recognize, okay, it may be a quite a expensive upfront investment, but there's many downstream benefits. But on, But... Even more important than that is that peop- the quality of people's lives would would improve. You know, poor health impacts on people's dignity, on people's Very opportunity, much. on people's quality of life. And, and I think often people think, well, there's nothing you can do about it. But there is. There, you know, 
that you can you don't have to be obese. Um, you know, obesity is linked to a lack of understanding about the types of food that you that that you eat. You don't. You know, you, you can fight to ensure that your child doesn't experience malnutrition, uh, as so many of our children do in this in, in this country. Making sure, first of all, that you know what nutrition is good, best for children, but also making and we keep on talk, coming back to the Constitution. You know, the Constitution <laughs> says that uh, children have a right; everyone has a right to sufficient food and nutrition, or sufficient mm. food. Yes, that must age, mean yeah. something in the constitution. So you know, I, I, I would be saying, well, government, what are you doing to make sure that my child has sufficient nutrition? If I'm in a position where I can't afford to to perp, to to, to ens- guarantee that myself, so there's just so much that can be done. But knowledge is power. Alternatively, ignorance disables you. We're talking to Mark Hayward, the executive director at Section 27. Ladies and gentlemen, we have about another six to seven minutes. So if you are considering calling, this is as good a time to do so. The number is 0891-104-207. WhatsApp voice notes 614 Mark Hayward, executive director of Section 27. Mark, the United States are pulling back in terms of their investment as it pertains mm. to the rollout of HIV and AIDS. Might that be an indictment on the public health care administration, that which you touched on earlier on in this point? Yes, I think it is. Um, the treatment action campaign for certainly the two, last two or three years has been saying that there are flashing red lights above the HIV program in South Africa, and people have been ignoring the warnings that the TAC has been trying to Who's people? make public. Well, the Minister of Health. Uh, um, the government as a whole. The, Can the, we come back and have this conversation with him? Uh, yeah, please do. Please sure. do. Okay. The, the, the deputy My producer will note that. Please do. The deputy president, who is the chair of the South African National AIDS Council. So we're getting many indicators. Won't get him. Yeah, well, I doubt it as well. <laughs> And that's another discussion that we can have. No, no, no. I was actually talking about the fact that he probably won't have, not that he shouldn't have the time, but he probably might not have the time. Well, he should have the time because HIV is a a serious an issue in this country as ESCOM and the electricity crisis. We don't disagree on that. We don't disagree. There's 8 million people living with HIV in this country. So if the deputy president is mandated with responsibility for HIV, then he must take that responsibility absolutely seriously. And it's because... We have lost the political will around HIV that we are beginning to lose control of. You you said a few minutes ago that we're managing it. We are largely managing it, but we're not managing it as efficiently or as well as we should. And so the Americans are saying, and I disagree with them on this, but they're saying, look, we put, I've forgotten the figure, but they put sort of 50 billion rand a year, I think, into our HIV programs. And they're saying, well, why should we put 50 billion rand a year into HIV programs that aren't delivering results? And I guess that's a good question. Trump. Well, yeah, Trump would love to be given reason to pull that money out. Uh, you know, Trump is a, is, a, is a very unpleasant man and a dangerous president. Uh, <laughs> We shouldn't give him reason. We shouldn't sure. give him reason. I accept that. Let's talk about now access. Um, a right is one thing if it is on paper. 
quite another if you can experience it, live it, know where to find it, know how to find it, know how to use it so that it comes to your defense. And for most part, rich people can buy their way out of this. Let's talk about affordability of medication and chemotherapy mm. and this right to public health. I mean, it's going to touch on obviously issues that the health market inquiry is dealing with by and large. But access is a major issue. In fact, sorry, be, whilst you mull on that, I'm yeah. going to, I, I want to go to Michael in the Northwest who's calling us because I don't want to be sort of a dialogue between the two yeah. of us. Mark, so please hold. Michael, sure. are you available? Good evening. How are you? Fine, thanks. How are you? Your question for good, Mark? Good, good. I would like to just comment on what your guest has been saying about the government's reactive approach towards public health care in South Africa. But I also agree that uh, they're not doing enough on the preventative side of things or uh, raising awareness about the different chronic diseases of lifestyle and all that and using our public uh, broadcasting opportunities to, 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 to let people un- be aware of what's happening. Because I'll give an example with what's happening in schools as well, especially in rural areas. We find that uh, what is being sold to learners as snacks and all mm-hmm. that is not necessarily something that you would want your child to exactly. grow up consuming, given that uh, sugar intake and salt intake and all those nasty things are actually on the rise and we are a potential market for the conglomerates in terms of what they can get to us because of our lack of awareness of what these things do to us. And they contribute to cancer and all these other uh, unwanted things that are difficult to prove later in life that there's actually a link between your sugar intake and all that at a later stage in life. Thanks, Michael. Thank you, Michael, in the Northwest. 21.43, just literally less than two minutes to go. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to these two points as you take us out. Mark Haywood. Well, I, I agree completely with, with Michael. Um, yeah, the time is short, but to, but to say he's, he's right. I mean, kids are being given foods to eat through schools, stuff that's sold at the gate, which is dangerous to children's health, and parents don't know better. And often it's very, very cheap, and because it's very, very cheap, children buy it, and it, it's bad for health. On the question of access, Songeza, it's a pity we've only got one minute. Let me tell you one story, which I think is a story that faces many, many people in our country. Mm-hmm. At the end of last mm-hmm. year, I got a phone call from somebody in Cape Town whose wife had a form of brain cancer. The drug that she needed for that brain cancer was 1.8 million rand. You, you, you. Uh, there was only one drug registered in the country because of the patent on that drug. There yeah. was another drug available, uh, but which was not permitted in our country because of the patent, which was available for 750,000 rand, which is also madly expensive. But half of the other. But half of the other. This family out of their own pockets. Now, as you can imagine, 95% of families in our country can't afford 750,000 rand, but they had to opt to find 750,000 rand out of their own pocket if they could get our organization to overcome the legal obstacles to them getting that that medicine. That story is repeated across the board. We're campaigning at the moment on on another drug. Uh, It's called lenalidomide. 
uh, which is Mark. for multiple myelomas. Let me just make this point. It costs 828,000 rand in South Africa. The same drug in India costs 28,000 rand. And that's a do problem s- right there. Do you see These are some problem. of the issues. Yeah. These are some of the issues we are going to have to tackle going forward. And we have agreed that we're going to have a, a health awareness month rolling on going forward. That was Mark Hayward, Executive Director at Section 27. Song as a My Bet is now taking out two adverts. And then we're going to go to the Daily Soapy, the paper.